This is The Crown in Canada, presented by Nathan Tidridge and Leaking Ambiance Studio in association with the Ontario Historical Society. Episode 1, Rooted in Treaty. I'm standing along the Niagara River on a spot where one of the most important events of the last 300 years in what is now Canada took place. The Niagara Commons is a beautiful space nestled up against the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario. Many people come here for the history. 19th century Fort George is just a few meters from me. The monument to Upper Canada's first parliament is down the way and the historic Fort Niagara, dominated by its castle, can be seen across the Niagara River in what is now the United States. However, the reason I'm here has no monument, no plaque to explain its significance. There's nothing here that speaks to one of the great gatherings of Indigenous and non-Indigenous dignitaries in this continent's history, the Great Council of Niagara, that took place during the summer of 1764. This gathering extended the oldest continuous relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples into what was to become Canada, the Covenant Chain, a relationship first established with the English during the reign of King Charles II in the 1660s. Critical to the Treaty of Niagara that was formed that summer was the familial, family relationship established with the King, a relationship that continues today in the new reign of Charles III, some 400 years later. My name is Nathan Tidridge, and I'm a settler here in Canada. I teach treaty studies, Canadian history, and civics in my hometown of Waterdown, Ontario, a public high school. For as long as I can remember, I've been thinking and writing about the place of the Crown in this country, and for the past 10 years in particular, its role in treaty and other critical relationships with Indigenous peoples. The purpose of this podcast is to not get caught up in the tired, often binary debate regarding the future of the Crown in Canada. Rather, its purpose is to explore how the Crown, an institution with over a millennia of history to it, arrived in these lands and became rooted in the land as a foundational, largely unseen and misunderstood part of our society. It is, as famously coined by scholar David E. Smith, the invisible Crown. I think it's important to underscore that I'm not an Indigenous person, I come at this as an ally who wants to explore the crown's meaning in treaty, especially the role of the king or queen and their representatives and the crown indigenous relationships threaded here. It goes without saying that this is ongoing learning and requires all of us to continue engaging with our partners as treaty requires for a more complete history. On a sunny day in Yellowknife in May of 2022, the King and Queen, then the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall, toured Canada as part of the celebrations of the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. The royal couple joined the territory's wonderful commissioner, Margaret Tom, for the final event of their whirlwind three-day journey across the country. Together, they stood in front of a small garden which had been lov- lovingly planted with orange tiger lilies, sage, and tobacco. The commissioner, herself a member of the Dene Nation and a four-time residential school survivor, carefully explained the teachings attached to each plant and medicine, 
She paid special attention to the use of the color orange to represent children lost to Canada's Indian residential school program. And the royal couple understood. It was an important moment. It was a meaningful moment that was largely ignored by the national and international media that accompanied the royal couple that day. Understanding the importance of what happened in that little plot of land in Yellowknife, one of 13 such gardens planted across the country, requires an understanding of the history and complex relationships that exist on these lands between the Crown and Indigenous people. A history that in many cases binds the Crown, or to use the gardening analogy, roots it in treaty. These roots cannot be captured in a soundbite, and so often events that highlight its complexity are either misreported or outright ignored. It's a natural symptom of Canada's poor civic literacy. But that little garden in Yellowknife, joined by its viceregal counterparts, lovingly planted with medicines by the Crown's representatives and their Indigenous counterparts, are a 21st century monument to both living and ancient relationships. Visiting them asks us to recall and consider a history that was very nearly forgotten. My first encounters with both the Crown and Indigenous knowledge systems stem from my boyhood explorations of the lake at my family cottage in Muskoka. Buck Lake pooling out from either side of the Muskoka-Perry Sound border in the territory of the Anishinaabe nations was the source of many adventures as I plied its waters in an old canoe gifted to me by my stepfather. I discarded all the official maps of the area, opting instead to make my own. And as the years went by, I added islands, rivers, and new lakes to an expanding world of my creation. I discovered uh, what I called the New World in nearby Fox Lake. I christened islands with names like Turtle Island and Neverland Island. And over time, traditions were developed between my friends and I that included flags, medals, even canoe wars. And to this day, Buck Lake is a sacred space for me, a place of my youth, a place of regular pilgrimage. It is, in the words of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, a signpost from which I can stand and see the world. One year, my best friend Aaron and I were planning out one final epic canoe trip of the season. Two lakes down from us was this massive, to us anyways, Lake Vernon, what we called the New Frontier. Near the spot where we first encountered the lake was a place we had named the Bay of Islands, which was dominated by a massive island the locals called simply Big Island. For this final trip before the school year began, Aaron and I resolved to canoe in one day to that island and claim it for ourselves. Not only would we touch and name the island, but we also decided to climb to the top of one of its hills and find a leaf to send to a famous person. Who should we send it to, Aaron asked. As fate would have it, the television was on, tuned to CTV News and a story about the Queen, who was touring Canada that summer. Well, we'll send it to the Queen, I said. You can't find anybody more important than that. And so off we went, finding ourselves scampering up the rocky coast of what we had now christened, rather grandly, Royal Britannia. We collected a small sugar maple sapling from which a leaf was plucked and forwarded to Buckingham Palace. By the end of the month, a generous reply was received on behalf of the Queen, thanking me for the leaf. My fascination with the crown was born. Years later, I attended Wilfrid Laurier University, 
studying history and religion and culture. During my last year, I decided, with the help of a wonderful professor, Susan Scott, to gather together all my maps and stories of adventures on Buck Lake and publish them as a book. Susan and I would meet over tea at her home in Waterloo as she gently guided me through the process of recording personal history. One day, as we approached what I thought was the end of the process, Susan asked me a question that challenged everything. Nathan, she asked, smiling at me, how are you going to handle the ideas of imperialism woven into your story? I pictured my canoe grinding into some unseen rock in the water. In terms of what I had created, the world surrounding my cottage, Susan's question should have stood out as obvious to me. I was acting like an imperialist. Muskoka was there for my pleasure and imagination. I was your stereotypical cottager in the 1990s. Romanticized beyond recognition, the area existed in my mind from June to August, with maybe an appearance in March. As a boy, I had never imagined Indigenous people living on the lands and in the waters surrounding my cottage. I'd always pictured them as being from some ancient past, far removed from my life. In school, Indigenous peoples occupied only the first few pages of our history textbooks, if at all, before vanishing into the timeline, displaced by settlers. Later, when I became a teacher of history in my own right, I was at first very tentative about exploring the place of Indigenous peoples in my teaching practice. Resources were scarce, and with my profession's linear, Europocentric approach that privileged written history, the temptation was always to fall back on old tropes that have been used to justify colonization for the past century. No wonder I had spent my youth reenacting the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius on the shores of Buck Lake. The systems that surrounded me at that moment in my life, education, media, my privileged middle-class upbringing, informed my teenage imagination. I loved C.S. Lewis's Narnia epic Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Arthur Ransom's Swallows and Amazons. Going back to that moment 30 years ago, when I first stepped on that island, that for me would become Royal Britannia on Lake Vernon during the final days of that summer, causes me to think, and how did my friend and I claim that space, and others in following years for ourselves? How did we create that empire? Why, we use the crown. The moment the Prince of Wales ascended the throne as King Charles III, he became part of the Covenant Chain, a treaty relationship that has over four centuries of history to it on these lands. It's a history well known to its Indigenous members, but largely, and some would say deliberately, has been forgotten by the settlers. First contact between settlers and Indigenous peoples in this part of the continent, and I'm talking the centre, traces its roots back to the Dutch establishing a colony around what is now New York. The Dutch established this colony called New Amsterdam on the southern tip of what we now call Manhattan Island. This is the reason that that region has so many European names that have Dutch roots. Think Staten Island, the Bronx, Broadway. Wall Street was in fact the location of the wall that separated the colony from the outside world. Emptying into the Atlantic along Manhattan Island's western shore is the Hudson River, a waterway that provided access for Dutch and indigenous traders 
into the northern region of that part of North America. Wanting to establish trading relationships with the indigenous nations further north, the Dutch founded places such as Fort Orange. Fort Orange placed the Dutch on the edge of the Mohawk nation's homeland, and the Mohawk, known as the Keepers of the Eastern Door, would act as conduits for relationships with the rest of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. But it was clear from the beginning that the indigenous and non-indigenous civilizations, apart from an inherent interest in trading with one another, had very little in common. Let me give you an example. The way in which we experience the world around us is guided by the languages we speak. The argument goes that if your society does not have a word for a particular concept or experience, then they don't have the ability to experience it or know that they're experiencing it. This idea extends to concepts of time and how we feel time. I'm speaking English right now, and even though I descend on my mother's side from a long lineage of French Canadians, I'm unilingual. I only speak English. Have you ever considered how you feel time? Using English, we have three ways to articulate how we experience space and time. Past, present, and future. This gives English speakers a sense of progressing through time. Ever wonder why history teachers in Canadian high schools obsess over timelines, names, and dates? The past is the past and the future is the future. They're separate, siloed. Recently, I was gifted with the teaching that the language of the Ganyakahaga, or Mohawk people, has as many as six tenses, but there are also multiple other ways of expressing time. I have three. So what does this mean? It's but one example of the challenges faced when civilizations meet. So how do fundamentally different societies come together with such differences between them? Well, the indigenous nations of Turtle Island already had a system that allowed the Dutch and Haudenosaunee to trade with one another. Treaty. Here's another lesson concerning language. When non-indigenous folks, particularly Europeans, hear the word treaty, they think of some sort of signed document. My students immediately conjure images of the contracts that they've signed with Bell or Rogers over their cell phones. Written words on a piece of paper meant to spell out a particular relationship filled with various clauses that are negotiated out before being made permanent. This is not what treaty is. Treaty is relationship. It purposely lives in the abstract, its definition changing over time to meet the needs of the relationship. Think about one of your closest friendships. How could you ever capture it using the written word such that it could be definitively defined or even transferred to another person? Treaty, a relationship, requires ongoing negotiation and abstract descriptors such as communication, loyalty, honor, trust, and love. The love that has been described to me is the one that exists between siblings. And those of us with siblings know that while we might not always like our brothers and sisters, no one can push our buttons or fight with us like a sibling. We love them. Also, no one can hurt you like a sibling. But usually, with love, there's always a way through. Interestingly, the crown lives in a similar, abstract world where such descriptions hold true. The same words used to describe treaty relationships can be used to describe the relationship people have with the crown. I immediately think 
of all the newscasters during the coverage of the funeral of the late Queen. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why the Crown becomes the vehicle through which treaties are established with Indigenous peoples. By the way, when treaties are understood as relationships akin to those within a family, the egregiousness of things like the Gradual Civilization Act, the Indian Act, and programs like Canada's Residential School Program, the 60 Scoop, the Provincial Child Services Program, really come into focus. Not only did the government, in the name of the Crown, target children, but it targeted the children of nations meant to be kin. And so it was through treaty that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Dutch were able to interact as nations. Once a relationship is established, other things can be developed that allow for a peaceful coexistence, trade, conflict resolution, legal questions, recognition of each other's distinct sovereignty. Perhaps the most famous manifestation of the covenant chain relationship, and there are many, can be found what is now popularly known as the two-row wampum. Wampum are sacred objects, documents woven from quahog, a special type of shell found on the east coast of North America. Its use by numerous indigenous civilizations speaks to the interconnectedness of the continent's various nations before the arrival of people from away. How the shells were carved into the tubular beads used to create wampum? Wampum resemble a long, wide belt, although they're not meant to be worn around the waist, has yet to be revealed. The two-row wampum manifests the covenant chain that was established between the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch. Its symbolism, two purple lines on a long white belt, embodies a relationship meant to be separate but equal. Two vessels, an indigenous canoe and a European ship, traveling together down a river, each containing their own laws, languages, cultures, and sovereignty. The lines don't cross. They're not meant to. Every time there was a transgression, and of course there would be transgressions, Given the radical differences between these civilizations, the two sides would gather together, pull out the two-row and other important wampums, and remind themselves of the relationship meant to guide their coexistence. Once that was done, they could deal with whatever violation was at hand. The covenant chain bound the Dutch to the Haudenosaunee until the English evicted the Netherlands from North America in the mid-1600s. New Amsterdam became New York, Fort Orange became Albany, and so forth. However, the English wanted to be part of the covenant chain, articulated by the Dutch as an iron chain, the strongest metaphor they had on hand at the time. This was how King Charles II became bound into the oldest indigenous-non-indigenous relationship in the continent, now articulated as the silver covenant chain. One of the primary metaphors being that you must polish silver in order for it to remain bright. So too with treaty. Like relationships, treaties deal in time that span generations. And this is why they are always with the crown. For settlers, the crown was a constant in their civilizations that extended beyond a particular person or government. The crown is unending. This is the whole idea underpinning the saying, the king is dead Long live the king. It's an idea that remains with us to this day. The crown, as an institution, is immortal. What also must be considered is how the Haudenosaunee 
and subsequent members of the covenant chain observe and feel time and how that is part of the protocols of treaty. I'm not qualified to make such pronouncements, but I will say that for too long, the settlers' perspective of treaty has been the only perspective privileged by governments and historians. But I digress. The covenant chain held between the Crown and the Haudenosaunee into the 18th century. It wasn't perfect, of course. No relationship is, but it worked. And in 1710, the relationship allowed for a remarkable meeting between England's Queen Anne and four men, three Mohawk and one Mohican. They were there as part of a plan by the mayor of Albany to increase military spending in the British colonies. The primary purpose of their visit was an audience with Queen Anne, which happened on April 20th, 1710. And it was there that an extraordinary address was read. They said, the reduction of Canada, meaning the French, is of such weight that after effecting thereof, we should have free hunting and a great trade with our great queen's children. For the delegation, they articulated that a great source of frustration was dubious land sales being done by the French. As a token of sincerity, the men presented the queen with wampum and then continued, delivering an invitation. Since we have been in alliance with our great queen's children, the men said, we have had some knowledge of the savior of the world and had often been importuned to the French, both by the insinuations of their priests and by presence to come over to their interest, but have always esteemed them men of falsehood. But if our great queen would be pleased to send some of her persons to instruct us, they shall find a most hearty welcome. What the men were recognizing was that in the 18th century, faith was a political statement as much it was spiritual. If you increase military aid, we will entertain one of your priests coming to speak to our community. It's statecraft in the 18th century. Following this visit, military help was extended, resulting in the establishment within the walls of Fort Hunter in 1711 of the first chapel royal outside the British Isles, called the Queen Anne Chapel. A medieval institution, chapels royal were originally a retinue of priests and singers that followed the monarch during their travels in order to fulfill their spiritual needs. But these entourages also served political purposes for the court, particularly following the Restoration period. Brian Wright, in his article, Anthems and Politics in the Restoration Chapel Royal, explains that Chapel Royal services provided an occasion for ceremonies through which the monarch's position in the religious and political hierarchy of the nation was enacted. Queen Anne used the Chapel Royal as a vehicle to answer the Mohawk and Mohican request, and it's understandable when this role is considered. Fifty years later in North America, war erupted between the Europeans across the continent in the French and Indian Wars. Following the defeat of the French, British Governor General Geoffrey Amherst attempted to treat King Louis XV's Western Indigenous allies as if they too had been conquered, rather than conclude separate peace treaties with them. Amherst's methods of imposing British interests over the peoples of the Great Lakes region included advocating the use of blankets laced with smallpox, one of the first uses of biological warfare on the continent. The Governor General's efforts triggered widespread outrage, coalescing under the leadership of Pontiac of the Adawa Nation 
in the Pontiac Wars. With mounting military losses, General Amherst proved to be incapable of negotiating peace, much less execute the British administration of the continent that would be required by the 1763 Royal Proclamation. This was a framework that was being constructed back in England, but influenced by indigenous delegations. It was an Irishman, Sir William Johnson, and his partner, Mohawk clanmother Molly Brandt, that successfully lobbied the imperial government to accept the idea that in order for something like the Royal Proclamation to be accepted, a partnership needed to be kindled in these lands on indigenous terms, employing indigenous diplomacy. By late 1763, Amherst was recalled to London, and Johnson was authorized to hold a council with some 24 indigenous nations along the shores of the Niagara River during the summer of 1764. Basing himself at Fort Niagara over the month of July, Sir William negotiated separately with each nation, and after weeks of exchanging wampum and other gifts on behalf of the Crown, Sir William left Fort Niagara and crossed the Niagara River on July 31st, 1764. Walking up to what is now the Niagara Commons, Sir William addressed the Western nations gathered along its banks. He said, Brothers of the Western nations, sachems, chiefs, and warriors, you have now been here for several days, during which time we have frequently met to renew and strengthen our engagements. And you have made so many promises of your friendship and attachment to the English that there now only remains for us to exchange the great belt of the covenant chain that we may not forget our mutual engagements. I now therefore present you the great belt by which I bind all your Western nations together with the English, and I desire you will take fast hold of the same and never let it slip. The wampum belt, described by Johnson's secretary as the great covenant chain, 23 rows broad, and the year 1764 worked upon it, embodied what became known as the Treaty of Niagara. The treaty extended the silver covenant chain of friendship, first established with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy in the 17th century, into the interior of North America. King George III was now bound to the indigenous nations of the Great Lakes in a relationship of equality, respect, and love that was meant to continue to this day. The Treaty of Niagara ratified the Royal Proclamation of 1763 along indigenous terms and perspectives and was intended by indigenous and non-indigenous delegations to be the foundation of future negotiations between the Crown and First Nations. The very existence of the Covenant Chain Wampum tells us that the settler population got it because it was created by the King's representative probably informed by clan mother Molly Brandt and presented on His Majesty's behalf. This wampum is a royal artifact, a diplomatic device employed by the King's representative to, in the words of Dr. John Burroughs, ensure some principles which were implicit in the written version of the proclamation were made explicit to First Nations in these other communications. This relationship was intended to inform future treaties, including the numbered treaties and modern treaties formed with the Crown. The Silver Covenant chain of friendship also reinforced the notion that the treaty relationship was a personal one, a kinship, 
with the king regardless of the government or political developments of the day. Within 12 years, the American Revolution broke out and many of the Haudenosaunee nations held to the covenant chain and fought alongside the forces of King George III against the American rebels. Queen Anne's chapel at Fort Hunter was destroyed and desecrated by American forces, first used as a pub, then as a barn, and eventually was destroyed altogether. Its stones would eventually be used to build a nearby section of the Erie Canal. The Queen Anne silver and Bible, gifted by Queen Anne when the chapel was first constructed, were spirited north after being hidden in a barrel underneath a barn of an ally into what is now Ontario and are housed in two new chapels built by King George III around 1784. There's one at the Grand River and another at the Bay of Quinte. Together, these two chapels constitute physical manifestations of the ancient covenant chain, for many the first treaty relationship between Crown and Haudenosaunee Confederacy. In 2017, a third chapel was created by Queen Elizabeth II and the Mississaugas of the Credit at Toronto's Massey College. This chapel honors the silver covenant chain of friendship that had been extended into the Great Lakes over 250 years ago. At the heart of this 21st century chapel is a replica of the silver covenant chain gifted by William Johnson in 1764. That the Queen used the anniversary of Confederation, a moment that was detrimental to treaty, and paved the way for the creation of the Indian Act and all the horrors that continue to flow from it, is significant. During a historic address held at the chapel in 2019, to the assembled Canadian representatives of the Queen, the first of its kind in history, Perry Bellegarde, then National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, imparted this teaching. He said, Properly understood, the treaty relationship is not founded in rights denial or colonial mentality, but rather in the equality and sovereignty of peoples and our agreement to share the land without dominating one another. Each of you must be aware of this history and the significance of treaty as part of your high office. While the government of the day has a role to operationalize treaty obligations held by the Crown, the Queen's representatives are the caretakers and witnesses to this immutable relationship. That the Crown and its representatives are a key part of the treaty relationships in the contemporary Canadian state has largely been minimized or even ignored. The media, Academics, educators, and government officials have all contributed to this erosion of understanding. And I would argue this has been deliberate. Confederation disrupted Crown-Indigenous relationships, eclipsing, without the consent of Indigenous peoples, treaties and placing them under the control of the federal government. Canada Day is often celebrated as the beginning of the country's journey towards full independence. However, paralleling this journey has been the dismantling of treaties, and the attempted assimilation of Indigenous peoples into the settler society, especially since the imposition of the Indian Act. A key aspect of Canada's constitutional development that has really muddied the waters that we were meant to travel with together is the Convention of Responsible Government. Never articulated in treaty discussions, indeed language contradicting responsible language has often been employed. Since the 18th century, The development of the Westminster system of government has placed the exercise of political power in the hands of elected governments 
rather than the monarch or their representatives. It's a basic civics lesson that teaches that a 21st century sovereign must always follow the advice, except in very narrow cases, of their elected governments. For Canada, this means that democracy has seen the steady transfer of power, including relationships grounded in treaty, to elected settler governments. For the modern Canadian state, Charles III is the King of Canada, a distinct office from its British incarnation due to the 1931 Statute of Westminster, and therefore he must take the advice from his Canadian Prime Minister. Through this constitutional arrangement, the Prime Minister's office has become the gatekeeper of the ancient treaty relationships of this land, restricting both the access of Indigenous peoples to the sovereign Previous to Confederation, such meetings happened regularly, as well as controlling when members of the senior royal family can even visit this land. Examples of Canada's misunderstanding of the Crown were demonstrated during the final tour of Charles and Camilla as Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall in 2022. The media was filled with questions ranging from, why is the royal couple spending so little time in Canada? It was less than three days. Why is the royal couple not making more time to meet with members of the Indigenous community? And how did they select the places for this tour? These are the wrong questions. It's the Prime Minister's office, through the Department of Canadian Heritage, that determines the timing, length of stay, events, and guest lists. Access to the Sovereign or the Prince of Wales requires the approval of the Government of Canada. Similar dynamics were also at play for the recent 2022 Caribbean tours of the Cambridges and the Wessexes. Jamaica is as independent a state from the United Kingdom as Canada is from the United States, even though as Commonwealth realms, by choice, they share the same person as head of state. Responsible government means that the representatives of the Crown must follow the advice of their locally elected governments, regardless of how the institution will be used by the political actors of the day. This means that, as a friend recently pointed out to me, if an apology is required from the Crown, all that needs to happen is, is for its respective Prime Minister to offer such advice. To offer an apology without advice would be to violate the independence of their respective realms. If we really want to decolonize the Canadian state, it is the Prime Minister's office, the Cabinet, and their advisors in the Privy Council office that we must turn our gaze. The crown layered in history and pomp draws our attention to injustices because that is its role. The institution acts as a reflection of the society it represents. However, it is the elected officials whose hands actually rest on the levers of power and change. The truth, I believe, behind the government's tendencies to minimize the crown in this land, trivializing the symbolism and discounting the importance of ceremony here, all without the consent of its treaty partners, furthers one of the goals of colonization, complete control over the land's foundational relationships by the government of Canada. Canadian governments, particularly following Confederation, eroded the honour of the Crown, even installing vice-regal representatives that were not interested in, or at worst antagonistic toward, anything that wouldn't pave the way for access to land and resources. The symbols and relationships used by settlers to enter into treaty were co-opted by their governments and turned over to the colonizing enterprise. The honor of the crown, already tarnished by those entering treaty in bad faith, was abandoned altogether 
in the 19th and 20th centuries in the hunger for land. But despite all of this, indigenous people have reminded the Crown's representatives that they are rooted in relationships that predate the emergence of the Canadian state. To remove the Crown without understanding what it was before it was employed in the settler colonial project could prove to be problematic, especially since our Indigenous partners need to be consulted, keeping in mind that they weren't concerning the Convention of Responsible Government, Confederation, the Statute of Westminster, or even the 1982 Canada and Constitution Acts. We must broaden our view to encompass the systems that use the Crown to establish themselves here, systems that are made up of people that go far beyond the person of the king or the queen. Decolonizing requires non-Indigenous people to recognize that Canada itself is colonial. All aspects, our government, our education, capitalism, urban-rural planning, language, resource extraction, and its government exists to perpetuate the success and privileges of its citizenry, the majority of which are non-Indigenous people. Our concept of democracy is based on majority rule, which has forced its way into and over treaty and other Crown Indigenous relationships that were meant to guide the various civilizations inhabiting these lands. What the Crown does is it acts as a signpost to point the non-Indigenous population to the foundational relationships and the history of what happened on this land. By virtue of its role in colonialism and having those stories chained to it, the Crown is forced to atone or be in a constant state of reckoning for what happened within relationships that were meant to be with kin. The Crown can never escape this history, and nor should we ever want it to. These roles as witness and remembrancer are critical for a country that is not good at preserving institutional memory. We are a country designed to look forward. And for non-Indigenous people, there is no other state institution with such a role, regardless of how eroded it has become since the 19th century. Many will recall that on Canada Day in 2021, the statue of Queen Victoria outside the Manitoba legislature was pulled down by Indigenous people and their supporters gathered outside. Shortly after, the statue of Queen Elizabeth II outside of the province's government house was also toppled. These acts happened as undocumented graves of Indigenous children were being reported across the country on the sites of former residential schools. Previously, it was the statues of the principal architects of the Canadian state, residential schools, and dubious colonial officials that were being targeted. Johnny MacDonald is an example. But what happened in Winnipeg was a shift in focus to the Crown itself as a failing treaty partner. Treaty 1, the territory Winnipeg is located in, was concluded with Victoria, and Elizabeth II was her successor. The Honourable Serge Joyal, former senator, in his chapter, Overturning Royal Monuments, in the book, A Resilient Crown, provided this thoughtful explanation. The slow and uneven implementation of policies to provide more just and equitable treatment during the reign of the current queen as she marks her platinum jubilee has led to these outbursts of frustration. However, instead of seeking to overthrow the government, their purpose is to insist that governments live up to their acknowledged obligations. These obligations are identified with the crown in the person of the sovereign, a concept that gave the Manitoba protest greater meaning. 
The toppling of those statues is an example of the crown being used to reflect our society, as well as being a metaphor of the extent to which the honor of the crown could be allowed to erode in the hearts and minds of the people that pulled them down. And so here we are, back on the banks of the Niagara River at the dawn of the Carolean Age in Canada. During her historic installation address, Mary Simon, Canada's first Indigenous Governor General, pledged that she would use her new role to, quote, hold together the tension of the past with the promise of the future in a wise and thoughtful way. The crown, due to its history in this land, embodies that tension. It's this very tension that makes the crown not only relevant, but critical to the future of the country. Restored through ceremony by the sovereign and his representatives, and made operational by governments acting in his name, the honor of the crown provides a path to reconciliation, but it also holds out the possibility of meaningful relationship through mutually respected symbols, recovered ceremonies, and even new protocols. Canada has an opportunity to restore, to decolonize the role of the crown in this land. To paraphrase Perry Bellegarde, it is a caretaker and witness to the immutable relationships that sustain this land. If ever there was a figure who demonstrated their ability to hold together the tension of the past with a promise for the future, it is King Charles III. All that it requires is that the government of Canada allow these relationships to continue to be renewed in wise and thoughtful ways. Relationships that provide countless teaching moments for our society in all aspects of our existence here. So let's take a look at the crown in this land in thoughtful ways and see what we can learn about our country, both its tensions and its promises. Earlier this year, we lost a great Canadian. Dr. Michael Jackson lived an extraordinary life of service to his country, and in particular to his beloved Saskatchewan. He wore many hats, chief of protocol, deacon, advisor, including most recently as president of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada. This institute continues as one of his many legacies. He was a mentor to many people across this land, a role that came hand in hand with his friendship. Michael has been top of mind during the creation of this podcast. The crown has been part of the story of this land since the arrival of the first settler over 500 years ago. If this episode has helped to make some sense of what is commonly unseen and often difficult history, then it's served its purpose. But there's a lot more to uncover, both concerning this episode subject and more. So I invite you to come along for the journey. There is much to explore. There are many people whose teachings, hard work, and support have made this podcast possible. Their names and important work can be found on our website at www.crownincanadapodcast.ca. As well, I'd also direct you to the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada, whose contact information can be found in our notes. And of course, I would like to express my sincere thanks to my tireless senior producer, Tim Riley, as well as the producer emeritus, Barry Penhale. This podcast has been a wonderful experience, and I look forward to continuing with them as we head into this new reign. 
Let's keep thinking about this until we talk again next time. You've been listening to the first part of our inaugural episode of The Crown in Canada, Rooted in Treaty. Our host and guide on this important journey, exploring the role of the Crown in Canadian society, is Nathan Tidridge. Please come back for the second part in seven days' time, on New Year's Eve 2022, when Nathan will meet and have a conversation with Dr. Alan Corbier and Rick Hill in the historic Chapel Royal at Toronto's Massey College. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find us at crownincanadapodcast.ca to read our helpful show notes, leave a comment, or listen to extended material. Crown in Canada is produced in association with our friends, the talented and devoted staff at the Ontario Historical Society, Heather Anderson, Sarah McCabe, and the redoubtable executive director, Robert Leverty. We acknowledge that this pilot episode has been the beneficiary of support from the Government of Canada. A special thanks to our production family whose efforts on our behalf keep us humble. Jeff Bowes, director and producer. Barry Penhale, our producer emeritus. And to Helen Jones and Christine Vanderwall. Our score is composed and generously provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. All of our graphic arts are created by the skill of Ron Barnett of South Grey News. Nathan writes, hosts, and produces this work. And the show's senior producer is Tim Riley at Leaking Ambiance Studio. I'm your announcer, Annie Bowes. We'd love to have you back here for our next episode. From all of us, have a happy and safe season. Crown in Canada is copyright under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. <laughs>